we have been trucking through Galatians, actually since the beginning of May, and this is going to be our 18th message in the uh, teaching series, No Other Gospel, and uh, just a brief recap, and we've heard this week after week, the Judaizers, the false teachers, they were uh, the ones who were infiltrating these churches throughout Galatia, they were saying that Paul was preaching a false gospel that is based entirely on grace and only pushes grace and doesn't push any sort of holiness or anything like that or life change. It's just all about grace. And so they were saying he was preaching a false gospel that basically leads believers to live sinful, lawless lives, or the theological term is antinomian. Uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at how Paul's initial, or we looked at Paul's initial defense when he's defending his gospel that he's been preaching, where he described uh, gospel freedom, how every true believer possesses gospel freedom because of the gospel, and how they are to use it not for works of the flesh, which destroys the antinomian argument, but they're to use them for loving service. And then last Sunday, we looked at how Paul really tore the Judaizers' antinomian charge to pieces by showing how true believers have the Holy Spirit who helps them kill sin and live fruitful, holy lives. Um, in the next section, Paul provides practical wisdom for how true believers can carry out his command back in chapter 5, verse 25b, where he said, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I had every intention of just doing two parts on the work of the Holy Spirit. I had part one last week, but as I was studying this week, I realized, eh, that's not the right direction. Even though what we're talking about today is the work of the Holy Spirit, what Paul's actually talking about isn't another segment on what the Spirit does. It's on how we are to keep in step with the Spirit. So I had to make that correction. Uh, the context here in which he equips us to keep in step with the Spirit is actually very interesting in my opinion. It has to do with confronting sin uh, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Uh, for instance, if I have sin in my life, it has to do with me having sin in my life and then maybe Cameron, as a loving brother in the Lord, him coming to me and confronting uh, the sin in my life. And so that's the context for, for pretty much everything all the way through verse 10 of chapter 6. Now, some commentators wrestle with this particular section, and they wrestle with how it fits in with the previous sections. Uh, they say that it appears to be a bit out of place. It's like Paul's defending the gospel against the Judaizers, and then all of a sudden he kind of switches. That's what they think. They say it seems out of place, but I think it actually fits perfectly with what Paul has been saying and you know, defending the gospel and showing how Christians are people who pursue holiness in these things. I think it fits perfectly because equipping believers to confront sin in, in one another, it proves that the gospel of grace does not lead to antinomianism, right? I mean, antinomianism is the idea that we can just do whatever we want because of grace. And that's what they were charging Paul with. But if Paul is saying in this next section, if he's defending the true gospel by saying, actually, no, what the true gospel does through the Holy Spirit is that we are not to live antinomian lives, we are to go to our brothers and sisters when they're in sin and we're to confront them. We're to challenge them on that. So that's the opposite of antinomianism. If, antinom if our gospel was actually antinomianism, we wouldn't care about sin in our own lives or in the lives of anyone else. We wouldn't do anything. Just sin all you want. We wouldn't care about sin at all. And I think Christians, above all people in the world, care about sin more than anyone else. At least we're supposed to. And I think it's also safe to assume that some of the Galatian brothers whom Paul has been writing to over and over and over in this epistle, it, it's fair to assume that some of them had been deceived by the Judaizers and were now legalistic. They were adding works of the law to faith for justification. And that being the case, if some of them had fallen into it, it makes total sense for Paul toward the end of his letter to give them a way back to restoration. And that is through the brothers, the other brothers who are faithful, coming to them and saying, look, you're off track. You've gotten legalistic. You've added to the work of Christ. And so it makes sense for Paul to do that now at this point, doesn't it? 
So I don't understand how people are saying this seems out of place. It fits perfectly with what Paul has been saying, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others. We need to understand as Christians, it is our responsibility to care for one another, and sometimes this means that we have to confront sin. That's a, a sad reality, but it is a reality, and it's something that, that we must do at times in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It's not popular, it doesn't gain you fans or friends, uh, but is that what we're about? No. It, there is actually, though, a, a right way to confront our brothers and sisters who are in sin. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to do that. And that's what Paul lays out for us here. There is the way of the Spirit, which is the right way, and there is the way of the flesh, which is the wrong way. And when I think about my pastorate and all the times that I've called people out, I'm about a 50-50. Yeah, sometimes I act in flesh without realizing I'm, I'm acting in flesh. And then uh, that's never a good thing for any of us. And I'm sure you've done the same thing. If you've ever raised your voice to someone, you're acting in flesh. You're not acting in spirit. Don't bob your head, Jared. I saw that. He's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, who hasn't done that? So what he lays out for us here is how to keep in step with the Spirit by doing the Spirit's way of confronting sin and calling out a brother or sister. That's what he talks about here. And as I said, I think it makes total sense. It shows that we're not antinomian because we care not only about our own sin in our lives, but we care about sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters because we know that sin leads to death and destruction, and it wreaks havoc in lives and in marriages and in everything else. So please take your Bibles and turn to where Cameron just read from, Galatians 5, 26 to chapter 6, verse 2. I think this is undoubtedly the most practical section in the entire epistle of Galatians. Paul literally lays out like a 10-point or an 8-point list of, of how you keep in step with the Spirit when you go to somebody and, and call them out on sin. Very, very practical here. I've got eight points. He gives eight points. I'm going to give you eight points, but we're only going to deal with one through four today. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll deal with five through eight. Um, let's pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves and ask for your guidance and help, your Spirit, to fill us to such a degree that, or to at least open our ears and eyes and hearts to your word. And I know, Lord, that as you um, unfold your word for us here, that there is the potential for the response of the flesh. And the flesh is just, it's like the heart, uh, the unregenerate heart. It's just deceitful above all else. It does everything it can to justify or to rationalize its sin. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would prevail over us today. And as you teach us and instruct us from your word on what it means to keep in step with the spirit as related to going to our brothers and sisters who are in sin. So help us to know uh, what to do and how to do it and to bring you glory in all things. And so we humbly submit to you now and ask for your instruction and your guidance, and your leading, and we pray that you're glorified now, and we pray in Jesus' matchless name, amen. So we'll start with Paul's first point, and that is this, and this is where we left off. Again, this is how we keep in step with the Spirit in relation to going to our brothers and sisters who are in sin. Firstly, we keep in step with the Spirit when we self-check and make sure that we are not being led by our flesh. Self-check is the first step, always, when it comes to correcting someone else. You always have to check yourself before you wreck yourself, literally. You've got to check yourself, and usually this is not something we do. We go right to them and then, and then point out what's going on without being cognizant of ourselves, or our own struggles, or our own weakness. The first thing that you've got to do before you go to a sinning brother or sister is check yourself. Self-check is the first step, and Jesus taught this perfectly, did He not? 
He taught this principle. He equipped his disciples to think this way and to respond this way to one another. What did he say? Make sure that you remove the log that is in your eye before you try to go and take a splinter out of your brother's. That's his way of saying, look, if you've got to correct each other, make sure that you don't come in a kind of judgment and make sure that you're aware of your own sin before you go to somebody else and talk to them about their sin. Matthew 7, 5, he says, first get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. That is a call to self-check. Check yourself before you go and talk to somebody else. He's not saying don't go to somebody else. He's saying make sure you check yourself before you go to somebody else. And there's reasons for this. A self-check or a solid self-check might reveal sins in our lives that we aren't aware of that could actually disqualify us from confronting others. How much sense would it make for me to go to somebody and call them out on a sin when I'm practicing the same sin in secret? That would make no sense for me to call. I don't have the authority at that point or the right to call somebody else out that's doing the same thing that I'm doing. That's hypocrisy. And if you know anything about Jesus and you've studied the Gospels and looked at His ministry, the one thing that He seemed to despise above all else is hypocrisy. This is why He says, take the log cabin out of your eye before you go remove the toothpick in your friends. Hypocrisy is, is we're all hypocrites. We need to firstly admit to that, but it's, it's not a good thing. It doesn't help the cause of the kingdom or sanctification or anything like that. And so if you do a self-check and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what's going on inside of you, you might very well find out that you are practicing the very sin that you're about to call them out on, and maybe that's what's motivating you to call them out on because that's going to make you feel about, better about yourself. Who knows? you got no right to point anything out. And here's the thing. Maybe you're not practicing that same sin, but maybe you're practicing what you perceive to be a worse sin. You know? Well, I, I, I saw uh, Fred over there flirting with somebody that's not his wife, so I went and called him out, and then last night I was looking at porn on my computer. Shouldn't Fred call you out too? Fred's not aware of your sin. You see the hypocrisy there? It's ridiculous. In, in one of the tricks of the flesh is that we, we really are able to point out sin in others, but we don't see our own. So you got to be real careful when it comes to this. And, and sometimes we just don't go at all because our, we've just, our lives are so messed up. You might have sin in your life that, that disqualifies you from calling out some other brother. Uh, you could have the, the issue of a, a self-check. It might reveal not the same sin or a worse sin or something like that that your brother's practicing or sister's practicing, but... It could just reveal that you're being guided by your flesh and not by the Spirit in this desire to go to them. And Paul lists some things here that pertain to the flesh, right? You see them there, conceited, provocation, envy. These are all problems with our flesh. They're all things that our flesh does. And these things can be present we could be led and guided by these sorts of things. That first one, conceited. Conceit is just a, it's pride. It's thinking that we're better than others. And I'll tell you what, nothing stokes the flames of our pride more so than somebody sinning. Because we look at them and say, ha ha, look at them, I'm glad I'm not like them. Well, maybe you don't do that same sin and you feel justified in saying that, but you're still a sinner and you still sin and there's all kinds of sins that you do. The conceit. It's amazing that we can learn about a brother that's in sin and that can actually stoke pride in ourselves. It can, it can bolster a sense of us being better than them because look at what they're doing. It can lead us to take action and to go to that person not based on a sense of love or compassion for them or a desire to see them restored, but because of a sense of superiority over them. And what the flesh does in this conceit is it sees sins in others as opportunities for self-exaltation, right? It 
boasts when others get entangled in sin. It does that. That's what our flesh does. You realize that? It does exactly what that Pharisee did in the, before the altar there that in Luke 18, 11, where he's, you know, allegedly worshiping God, and he starts talking like this in his fleshly conceit, I thank God that I'm not like other men, you know, God, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that pathetic loser tax collector over there. Here, here are two people at the altar of God attempting to worship God, and one is ultimately concerned about how sinful the person is next to him. That's the conceit of the flesh. Well, I'm, I know I'm bad, God, but I'm not that bad. So when you learn about sin in someone else, it can bolster conceit. It can give you a sense of superiority over that person or over others. I don't do that. Thank God I don't do that. I'd never cheat on my wife. You ever looked at a woman lustfully? You cheated on your wife. Well, hold on a second. Let's back up the truck. Beep, beep, beep. So there's a conceit that's buried in the flesh, and sometimes it rises to the occasion when we discover things about others, especially sinful things. He talks about provoking here, provoking one another. This is provocation. The flesh is a provoker. It can provoke us to anger when we see our brother or sister sinning. You ever gotten mad because your brother or sister sinned? They did something? Maybe they did something that hurt someone else or hurt you and you got angry and mad over it? That's fleshly provocation. We see sin in someone or they sin against us or what have you, it can get us fired up. It can put us in a sort of attack or defense mode. It can lead us to criticize or to belittle or to patronize our brother or sister and thus provoke them to anger or to discouragement. We end up going to them in fleshly provocation or anger and then we create more damage than good because we're, we're attacking or accusing, or belittling, or patronizing. What were you thinking, you dummy? That kind of talk. So you've got conceit in the flesh, you've got provocation in the flesh, and he says you've got flesh that is envious. Well, the flesh just straight up hates it when others enjoy things that we want but don't have. That's what envy is. It's like jealousy, but a little different. Um, what envy does is it sees others, especially brothers and sisters, it sees them as competitors. Right? It judges what they have and sees that they have more than we have or that they have a better life or a nicer wife or a better home or a dog that's more friendly or whatever it is. And they say to themselves, I hope all that comes tumbling down. Because deep inside that flesh, there's an envy in there. And, and you know what happens, what envy does in our flesh? It, as it sees others as competitors, even our brothers and sisters, it, it wants to rejoice when they fall. Well, it's about time somebody knocked him off his high horse. That's the kind of things that we say. When, in fact, your brother was never on a high horse, he just has a better job than you. Or maybe his kids are nicer. Envy is, is, is a cancer. It just eats people alive. It, it wants to punish those who seem better than us. And what a perfect opportunity to bring that judgment and punishment when we find out someone's in sin. Heaven forbid someone, somebody that we're envious over would sin in front of us. Because I tell you what, now it's time to load the shotgun. Because I'm about to bring them low where they belong, down under my feet. That's fleshly envy. Don't look at me with a smirk. You know you felt this way. If I have, I know you have. I'm not the only one in this room. Heaven forbid. You ever rejoiced when calamity struck somebody? Who hasn't done that? That's envy. It's lethal. 
Paul, Paul is saying, man, when you find out your brother or sister's in sin, watch out for fleshly conceit, watch out for provocation, watch out for envy, because your flesh with those things is going to lead you to respond to them the wrong way and you're going to cause more damage than good. That's what he's saying. As a rule of thumb, if you self-check, because that's first step, right? You don't just, well, I'm going to go over and talk to Steve. Hold on a second. Check your flesh. Check your motives. Go pray before you talk to Steve. Sorry, Steve. Steve's a terrible sinner. That's flesh, saying that about him. Check yourself, right? Go and, and, and check yourself. So as a rule of thumb, you go check yourself. If you find conceit, that would be a sense of superiority. If you find provocation, that would be a sense of hostility towards someone. Or if you find envy, in this scenario, that would be a sense of satisfaction over your brother or sister's demise. If you find any of that kind of stuff, anything like that, even a tinge, a percent of any of that in there, guess what? Your flesh is in control and you need to go repent. And you may not even get an opportunity to call them out because you realize how disqualified you are. You might go to somebody and say, could you call me out? I got major problems here. If you do a self-check and you find these fleshly things, just abandon ship and, and deal with yourself. You're the one that needs to deal. You need to deal with you. And yet if you, and this happens, if you find no such sins, you're not being driven by conceit or provocation or... Um, envy or any of these sorts of things, you know, you have actually a holy desire to, to show care and to show compassion and to see restoration and, and somebody restored because of that sin. If you see that or sense that in you, then obviously the Spirit's in control, not your flesh. And you're going to, when you go to that brother, you're going to sound like the rest of the passage. You're not going to sound like flesh, you're going to sound like the Spirit because you keep it in step with the Spirit. MacArthur wrote, Conceit, provocation, and envy are characteristics of believers who are not walking by the Spirit but who are in the flesh and are therefore disrupting the body fellowship by producing the deeds of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. What he just said is you're in no condition to be calling anyone out. You better check yourself and deal with your attitude and deal with your flesh and deal with your sins. And, and if you deal with those things appropriately, you confess those things, right? First John, it talks about how God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then, and then alone, can you go to that brother, but you better follow the rest of all this Spirit's leading. There's a certain way to do it. He talks about that in a moment here. We keep in step with the Spirit when we self-check and make sure that we are not being led by our flesh. That's the first point. We can move to the second point. Number two, we keep in step with the Spirit when we gently restore a sinning brother. We see this in the very first verse of chapter 6. We saw the other one in, in chapter 26 and verse 5. Now we see this in chapter 6, verse 1a. Uh, he says here, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The sure sign of spirit-led correction is gentleness. That is the sure sign. Like if you go to a brother or sister and you're not gentle with them, you, you can just know right off the bat that you're being led by your flesh. If you are being gentle, that's a good sign. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew 5 or Matthew eleven twenty nine. And, and those who possess His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, they're going to be like Him. They will be gentle. Lowly in heart means humble. They will be gentle. They will be humble. Gentleness is actually a fruit of the Spirit. We saw this back in verse 23 of chapter 5. Gentleness. I want to break down this verse and look at all these key phrases. There's some important phrases here. Uh, firstly, if anyone is caught... Anyone is caught. You, you need to understand something here because there's a fleshly temptation to misunderstand and misapply this verse. Anyone is caught. Oh, that must mean I'm to go out and catch Christians in sin. Flesh, not spirit. You're not, 
You're not a sin detective. You're not the Lord's police officer. You're not a sheriff's deputy for the kingdom of God. No, 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 no. Anyone is caught. Paul is not promoting the idea of watching our brothers and sisters to catch them in transgression. That is not what he is saying. We are not supposed to look for sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Okay? That's, that's not our job. You're not supposed to be out there just looking for it or waiting for it or listening for it. We are not to focus on their sins or their behavior like that. We are to focus on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, and anything worthy of praise. Philippians 4, 8, the happy book. We are to believe the best about our brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 13, 7b. And let me tell you something right now, that is not easy, is it? Is that an easy thing to do, just for me to assume the best about my brothers and sisters? Not when they give me plenty of reason to doubt. That is not easy, but that is the focus, according to Scripture. You're in pastoral ministry. You see all sorts of stuff, and it is, it is a tough one to believe the best about people, to assume that they're not being guided by sinful, false motives. Because you've seen it so many times in people, you tend to just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume that everyone just, just doesn't care. You know, no one is righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that, I believe that, and I'm not going to believe that any, there's anything good about man at all or anything good about our brothers and sisters. I'm just going to assume they're all corrupt and all wicked and all jacked up and always have wrong motives, and the guy gave me a sandwich because he wants something out of it. That's the bitterness that comes in after doing years of ministry. you got to guard against this. I, I have to more than anyone in this room. It's a tough gig. But we are to believe the best about them. We are not to assume that they have wrong motive or that they're just trying to sin. We are to count others as more significant than ourselves the happy book again, Philippians 2, 3. Is that easy to do? No. And in fact, when we learn about sin in a brother or sister, we typically are filled with fleshly conceit, and we think far less of them than we should. And we think that we're better than them. Ooh, look at that. I'm in the, I'm in the lead now. Joe fell hard. Ha-ha, <laughs> Joe! Oh, look at him. Oh, he's going way down. Oh, this makes me... This is the flesh. Sound like more like Tim the Toolman for a second there, but we are to count others as, 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 as more significant than ourselves, especially our brothers and sisters. That's a tough gig, but it's what we're called to do. I like the Greek word here, it's prolambano, uh, and that's the Greek word for caught. And it means to learn something by surprise. There's the meaning. You're not looking to catch them. Their sin catches you by surprise. You didn't know it was there. You didn't see it before. You weren't looking for it. All of a sudden, you discovered something about your brother and sister that kind of made your head spin. Whoa! Didn't have no idea that Fred was doing that. What do I do now? Right? It's finding out something by surprise. Paul is essentially saying when you suddenly find out about your brother's sin, that is what he is saying. His sin comes as a surprise. It wasn't pre we weren't aware of it previously. We didn't suspect anything. Why? Because we weren't looking for it. Okay, so that's what it means to get caught. It's by surprise, and we're not policing people. We just, whoa, I, I, I had no idea. How many of you have experienced that with somebody that you were close to that you knew, and all of a sudden you just found out something that just blew you away? Mm-hmm. Yep. Why is that? Because our flesh is really, really good at hiding sin. We're good. We're masters of it. We're masters of cloaking and hiding our own sin. And this is why you don't find out about sinful behavior in somebody that you're close to. This is why you don't find out till later on, and it comes as a total surprise, because that person was really good at putting on a Christian smile while having a devilish frown behind the veil. You didn't even know. We've all made these discoveries. 
But I tell you what, when we discover these things about ourselves, we ought to be most surprised or probably not surprised at all and just deal with them. Next phrase, in any transgression. This is actually the scope of what Paul's talking about here. Underline that word, any. Any. What's he saying? Not just big sins. Any transgression. Any sin. We typically think of or only are surprised by the big stuff and feel like we need to intervene when it's big stuff, and that may be true in some sense, but he's not talking about big sins here. He's talking about any and all sin, from murder to stealing a box of Pop Rocks. I have no idea why I came up with that. I think it's probably because it's something that's buried in my subconscious. I think I stole a box of Pop Rocks when I was a kid. I know I stole a lollipop. My dad drug me back into TGNY and made me confess it to the manager. Mm-hmm. That's a surefire way not to become a thief. Yeah. It could be the, the, the most heinous sin to the, the lightest sin. And we need to remember that the wages of all sin is death. 623 of Romans. doesn't matter. Light things kill just as badly as, as the big things. It could be anything here, any transgression, and we need to understand that Paul is is not telling us to point out every transgression in the believer's life. He's not telling us, sit there, and any time you see or hear something sinful, make sure you point it out. Let me tell you something right now, just as a word of wisdom. If you do that, you won't have any friends. You better be careful. You don't just sit there and every time somebody does something, they'll let you do that about four or five times and after the sixth one, you might walk away with a black eye or they might disfellowship and break it off with you because they're getting tired of being called out on everything. We need to also remember that that if if we're dealing with a true believer, they have the Holy Spirit and He's the first one to call the sinner out, not us. I think we've, maybe all of us, I know I've known people who just sit there and nitpick you to death. And you know what? It's, it's not long before those people aren't around me because I don't like being nitpicked. I don't like the fact that I sin, but I also don't like being pointed out on it all the time by somebody else. Especially when I know how sinful that person is. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about here. Been there? Done that? Some people are just wired to be critical and overly observant, and they just call out everything. They even hear something that sounds kind of sinful. Ah, that's not the right way to look at that verse. And you're just sitting there going, okay, Spirit, how will you lead me? That's not at all what you're thinking. Right? You usually have a fleshly response. That guy's an idiot. I can't stand being around her. You're not going to have any friends if you do this. Actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, but it's actually a virtue to overlook offenses at times, especially when they're aimed at you. It's a vir- it's, you're virtuous by not calling people out on things at times, especially when those sins are aimed at you. That's a virtue. That's a grace virtue. Proverbs 19, 11, right? What Paul is, is, is saying here, he's not telling us to point out any, any and every transgression. He's just saying that they're all under the umbrella of any, anything, the lightest thing, the heaviest thing. And ultimately what he's saying here is just be gentle if and when you go to a brother or sister who is sinning. Be gentle. That's all he's saying. And he's saying it regardless of, of what they did. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes a, a greater sin that somebody commits is going to elicit a different response from us, isn't it? If somebody sins in a real grievous way that causes harm, I'm less inclined to be gentle, more inclined to stick a foot in their rear. But what Paul is saying is, Phil, keep your boots to yourself and be gentle. It doesn't matter. Any transgression, gentleness is the right response to any and all transgression. If it's a really, really big sin, that doesn't mean you get to go pulverize them and beat them up. You got to be gentle. Any transgression. Gentleness is the right response to any and all. It's like, Paul, are you setting us up for failure? Yeah, pretty much. 
Because this is hard to do. He's not setting us up for failure. This is how we keep in step with the Spirit. Think of it like this. If they sinned small, be gentle. And I think that you're more inclined to be more gentle when the sins are smaller, right? Just it's a natural fit. But he's also saying if they sinned big, be gentle. If they cheated on their spouse, be gentle. If they cheated on their math test, big difference, be gentle. And yes, I had to cheat on my math tests, and I still didn't get through it. The literal scope here is any transgression, and the right response in every scenario is always gentleness. Always be gentle. Always. That was in any transgression. Another one here, you who are spiritual. This is very important. This is the qualification. Only those who are spiritual can actually go to a brother or sister who's sinning and and gently call them out. Only those who are spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? It means to be actually walking in the Spirit, to be obedient to God, not living in flagrant sin, not being guided by your flesh. The spiritual person is the person who is in right fellowship with God because they've got their life in order. They're walking by the Spirit. They're being careful. They're being confessional. They're being repentant. That person is the spiritual man. That is the one who can go to the brother or sister who is sinning and say something. If the person is not spiritual, I'm not not saying, I'm not drawing a line here between Christian and non-Christian. There is a way to be a spiritual Christian and there is a way to be a fleshly Christian. And he's saying you must be a spiritual Christian because then and only then are you qualified to do this. Then and only then are you going to go in gentleness. You're actually being led by the Spirit. But if you're not spiritual and you're guided by your flesh, get out of Dodge. I love Gunsmoke. It's such a good show. That's where that saying came from. You who are spiritual, this is a qualification. To be spiritual means to be in step with the Spirit back in Galatians 5.25. If he or she is in step with the Spirit, they are spiritual and they are qualified to gently correct. In fact, they will gently correct. But if they are living by the flesh, habitually transgressing, transgressing, pardon me, They are unspiritual, they are unqualified, and what they need to do is first deal with their flesh and sin before they start dealing with others, or else we're going to end up with hypocrisy and a mess. We need to make sure that we are spiritual Christians, walking in step with the Spirit before we go and say anything. Very important. Uh, should restore him. That's a, the next phrase. Should restore him. What is the goal of correction? What is the goal of discipline? What is the goal of church discipline according to Matthew 18? It is always restoration. Always. We don't punish each other for the sake of punishment. We discipline and we correct and we rebuke and we admonish and we exhort one another with the ultimate goal of restoration in mind, not just to put it on them. The church is not about punishing. We don't bear that sword. The state bears the sword of punishment. The church does not bear that. It bears the gospel. And if you have the gospel, you have the spirit. And if you have the spirit, then your goal is restoration with your brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin. It's always restoration. We want to see them back to a right standing or back to a right fellowship with God, right to a back... Uh, back to a right fellowship with one another. That's what we want to see. And, and this is really modeled after what we're supposed to be doing in our homes as parents, right? You don't punish your children for the sake of punishing them. You discipline them for the sake of restoration. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're just a punisher, then I'm sorry, but you're a bad parent. And if you punish in anger, you're a worse parent. You're just teaching your kid to be mean. I'm not saying hold, withhold the rod. You've got to put the rod on their rear end once in a while. But even that is for rest, restorative purposes. It is. It's about restoration. 
We gently correct our sinning brothers and sisters because we want them restored in fellowship with God and in right fellowship with the church because sin obliterates fellowship. It destroys it. We've had people leave this church over sin. They're not here in this fellowship anymore because of sin. It destroys relationships. It destroys fellowship. It destroys us. What did Owen say? Be killing sin or it will kill you. Sin kills everything it touches. It mars and destroys. And so we, we, we call it out gently because we want them restored, not because we want retribution, not because we want them punished. That's all flesh if we want them punished and we want retribution. That's conceit. And then lastly, he says, in a spirit of gentleness. The word spirit, what do you think it means here? He's not talking about the Holy Spirit right there. It has to do with your attitude. It has to do with your disposition. We must have an attitude or a spirit of gentleness when dealing with sin in others. That's the bottom line. That, that's, that's the key to this whole section. A spirit, an attitude of gentleness, regardless of what they've done, whether it be the most severe thing or the most minor thing in our, in our minds. It doesn't matter. Gentleness is what's, that's the spirit. What does Scripture say about these sorts of things like in other places, right? Like Proverbs 15.1, it's a gentle answer that turns away wrath. If you come at a sinning brother or sister in wrath, you're going to get wrath. <laughs> what is it that leads us to repentance? It is the kindness of God that leads us toward repentance. Amen? Romans 2.4. We have to bear the same attitude, gentleness, kindness, these sorts of things. And MacArthur again says, Restoration of fallen brothers and sisters is always to be done in a spirit of gentleness, which is characteristic of those who walk by the Spirit. A Christian who is critical and judgmental as he attempts to help a fallen brother does not show the grace of Christ, nor does he help his brother. <laughs> We're of no help if we come... When we're not walking in the Spirit without the gentleness, that's all flesh. Anything other than gentleness and a real concern and care is just flesh, and it's, gonna, it's not going to bear any kind of fruit. And it could be that you are the mo you're Mr. Rogers in that counseling session, or better yet, Bob Ross. Let's paint a happy little cloud of repentance right here. You could be the softest, most gentle, most Christ-like person, and they still hit you with daggers. That happens, but that's okay. It's, you did your part. They're not hitting you with daggers because you hit them with daggers. Bottom line, we keep in step with the Spirit when we gently restore a sinning brother. Gentleness is the key. Remember that. That's not an easy thing at times, especially when it's, that sin is aimed at you or aimed at someone you love or know or it's a big sin that, that all kind of messes with our response and our attitude, and we need to keep in step with the Spirit here, not with our flesh. Third point, we keep in step with the Spirit when we remain watchful and don't lose sight of our struggle with temptation and sin. This is pretty obvious. This is in the second half of verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1b, and he just simply says, keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. Again, the context is you're correcting a sinning brother or sister, so you're to be watchful over yourself as you begin the process of going to do that and while you're in the process of doing it. One of the Holy Spirit's tasks and one of His jobs, one of the things He does is to, to make us aware of our sins. I was reading some articles on this and there's hyper-grace people out there that say things like the Holy Spirit never convicts a believer of their sin. He only convicts them of their righteousness, and that's a hyper-grace position. The Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, and guess what? He has an active role in the lives of, his, in the lives of God's people, and that is to convict us of our sin. He never condemns us because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He does condemn the outsider, the unbeliever, but He can also move in power and transform their heart and lead them into the gospel. But he, he makes us aware. 
of our sin. He certainly does that. He's very active in my life. You know, I, I, I mean, if the Spirit got tired, I'd work him over. He's always working in me. And he's always gentle, by the way. He does not condemn those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1. He reproves, He disciplines, He convicts, He corrects us through the Word of God, Revelation 3, 19, John 16, 8, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All these verses talk about what He does there. And, and, and his, his reproving, disciplinary, convicting, correcting work in us, it leads to godly grief and repentance, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And, and here's the deal. When we discover sin in others, we tend to focus on their sin and forget about ourselves, don't we? Huh? Isn't that what we do? How often does someone else's sin remind you of your sin? <laughs> not very often, not often enough. Usually it just, we just start focusing on their sin. Right? And we start looking at them and saying, oh, Lord, look at that. Look at what they're doing. Wow, what about you? We're not talking about me. Wow, oh, my Lord, look at what they're doing. Right? I've actually said that in counseling meetings. Well, Jim, we're not here talking about me right now. We're talking about you. Right? Because they're now trying to deflect. And that's something that we do in the flesh, too, is we deflect. But what happens when we discover sins, especially if it's kind of the bigger stuff, we lose sight of our own feebleness, our own weakness, and we, and we forget about how easy it is for us to give in to temptation and to fall into sin. This is what happens. Our flesh not only sees sin in others as opportunities for self-exaltation, it sees sin in others as opportunities for self-distraction. Amen? Amen? I discover sin in Steve's life. It kind of distracts me from my own sinfulness, and I, I just tend to put the microscope on him. Our flesh is like a professional soccer goalie. It is, man. It deflects our attention. It, it blocks our awareness. It, it just annihilates self-awareness. And that's what it wants to do. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is to act like we are strong and, 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 you know, and to pretend that we don't struggle, that we don't really have to deal with temptation and sin. You know, we just kind of act like, well, I just don't have the same problem as you when we go to our brothers and sisters and call them out. It's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to, to lose your self-awareness. That's why I often suggest taking a mirror with you. Now, the brother or sister that you're talking to might think you're a narcissist, but you could say, I'm actually doing this for your benefit because I'm going to look at this every few minutes and remind myself of who I am and of what I do. I'm not looking at my golden or silver locks. I'm reminding myself that I'm probably more sinful than you are. You know, we, we, we lose sight of who we are because we're focused on them. We, we pretend to be strong and pretend to, to have it together. I don't really struggle with that. Instead of being humble in that session of trying to help our brother and sister, instead of being humble there, we're actually, we are actually sitting on a high horse. Instead of being affable, we're being arrogant. Maybe that's the time that we pull out the mirror. You going to do your makeup, Pastor Phil? No, I'm just looking at me because I'm terrible. We also need to be careful not to let a sinning brother or sister drag us into their sin or into some other sin. Sometimes you can, you know, you can be led by the Spirit and you can go right into a situation like that and, and all of a sudden you feel your flesh being pulled towards sinning. Maybe, maybe that person's making you angry. Maybe they're you know, rubbing you wrong psychologically and you're, you're getting fired up or maybe you're just being tempted to engage in the same kind of behavior. This can happen. This is how powerful the flesh is. The flesh tries to justify itself by bringing others on board. It spurns correction, and it works to spawn converts to its wicked passions and desires. I think we really do downplay and underestimate just how lethal our flesh is. 
Our flesh is so utterly worthless and so wicked that it has to be destroyed by death and in the grave. That's how bad it is. What's going to get destroyed when you... What, what's, what's going to ultimately destroy your flesh? Death. And then the grave is going to cause it to rot away. That's how evil and wicked the flesh is. When Jesus comes again, we get new bodies that are not corruptible, that are not sinful, that are not, that are not fleshly like that. They're fashioned for worship. But this is how bad and how wicked and worthless this flesh is. It's got to be destroyed by death in the grave. And if we're not mindful of who we are and how fleshly we can be and how often we give in to temptation and sin, when we're going into this kind of setting, I think this kind of plays into the self-check again, right? If we're not aware of that, if we're not guarding ourselves, we're going to either initiate some kind of fleshly response or get pulled into the sins of the flesh or whatever it is. You've got to be aware of who you are. Believers are to put no trust in their ability to stand firm because they know they can fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, right? Be careful where you stand, lest you fall. I really think that all believers, including me, are one poor decision away from absolute total catastrophe. One stupid, sinful step away from devastating your church or destroying your marriage or your relationship. It's all it takes. And for some, it's more like a frog in the boiling water, right? You just kind of increase the heat over time, then it boils to death. It never jumps out because it doesn't realize the heat's getting turned on. And sometimes sin works like that in our lives, doesn't it? Where we just, we just keep engaging and engaging, and then it takes a while for it to lead to the destruction. But for the most part, I think we're all on a slippery slope. And if we're not mindful of that and cognizant of that, you're going to come across... In, in, a, in, a, in a counseling session as very high and mighty, very overly pious, very self-righteous, maybe legalistic, you're going to come across like that, like you got it all together, or you yourself are going to get drug into something. We're not to put any kind of trust in our own ability to do anything at all. Our flesh is weak. The spirit is strong. The flesh is weak. We are to rely on God who is faithful to provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We don't rely on ourselves. We put no stock in this flesh. MacArthur again, he says, even spiritual believers, talking about believers who are, you know, walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, even spiritual believers can stumble. They are made of the same stuff as those who have fallen. Amen. If they do not pay diligent attentiveness to their own purity, they could be tempted and fall into the same sin for which they disciplined a brother or sister. This is why we must keep that awareness going. Remain watchful. Don't lose sight of who you are, especially when it comes to correcting others. We keep in step with the Spirit when we remain watchful and don't lose sight of our struggle with temptation and sin especially when we're working to gently restore a sinning brother or sister. That's the context here. I think in all instances, be aware of who you are, but especially when you're dealing with the sin of others. Don't pretend that you don't have it. Boast about yourself being the chief of sinners. <laughs> this is one sinner correcting another. That's how I'm going to start this with you. But I care about you and I love you and I'm not, I'm not engaged in that particular sin at this moment. I have victory over it. I want to help you have victory. I mean, this is the, way, the right way to deal with it, gently and be honest and open and transparent. Uh, the fourth point, we keep in step with the Spirit when we bear one another's burdens. Chapter 6, verse 2, he simply says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This verse is sometimes used to encourage Believers to help each other with their daily struggles, you know, to be maybe to become more sympathetic or empathetic or supportive of one another or each other. That's not the meaning of the verse. When you, verse is used that way, it's being used outside of its context. That's not what it means. The context is what? Restoring a sinning brother or sister. 
the bearing of one another's burdens has to do with holding a repentant brother or sister. Like if you go to them and they're repentant, they're confessional, you're right, I realize what I'm doing, they're repentant, right? They have the right godly attitude in this situation. Bearing one another's burdens has to do with holding that repentant brother or sister up and working to get them back on their feet. It's a restoration. It has to do with helping them repair whatever damage they did so that they can be restored to others and to their church. What Paul is saying here is it's not enough just to be led by the Spirit and to go to somebody and gently call them out. You have a greater responsibility than just pointing out sin. And if God grants a victory in that moment and that brother or sister realizes what they're doing, you've done part of your job, but there's another part, and and, and that has to do with helping them get back on their feet. Now, depending on the sin, some sins are going to require some work because they've caused a lot of damage. But other sins aren't going to require a whole lot of effort there. Restoration might not be, because basically you are working to restore them as they confess. There is a restoration that takes place there, but it might not be complete when the sinning brother or sister confesses his or her sin because there could be a pretty sizable mess to clean up, right? Because sin is messy. You could have destroyed relationships. You could have devastated families. You could have a lot of distrust among fellow believers and servants and, and the leadership team. I mean, sin, it just destroys everything. You could, have, you could need a really, really big mop. In scenarios like this where there's a lot of damage to, to clean up, confession is only the beginning of the restoration process, and the burden of repairing all the damage now begins. Paul is telling us to join with the brother or sister who created this burden through their sin and bear it with them and help them fix the damage and help them get their life back together. Why? Because love bears all things. All the tr- love bears all the trouble that we create. Amen? 1 Corinthians 13, 7a, love bears all things. And there's a number of ways that we can bear that burden. We can give godly counsel. We can share biblical wisdom. We can help them understand the gospel. The gospel is what liberates us from these sorts of things. We can uh, mediate between them and the people they hurt. We can supply them with resources. We can become a shoulder to cry on. Because sometimes, you know, just because somebody's confessed their sin doesn't mean they continue, you know, they've just stopped grieving over it. I mean, some of the things that we do, there's a process there by which we mourn and grieve what we've done to others and done to the Lord mostly. We can become a prayer partner to this, this, you know, battered brother who's repentant. We can provide accountability and keep checking in with them. There are a zillion ways that we can bear their burden with them and help them work toward restoration. See, if you just call them out, you're taking the easy route. Maybe this right here will cause us to be more sober-minded. What Paul is saying here, more sober-minded when it comes to this, knowing that we are to be burden-bearers as well. And if there's damage that needs to be fixed, that we help them fix that damage. And I know... Typically for you people or for congregates, you usually think, well, that's what the pastor gets paid for. Wrong. It's not just my job. He's not talking to just pastors here. He's talking to the Galatian brothers, all the Christians in these churches. This is all of our responsibility here. All of that he's saying here is our responsibility. It's not just the elders. Don't try to default. You want to see your pastor get worked to death, just let, force him to do all this stuff. It's your responsibility. We are are our brother's keepers. We are our sister's keepers. We care for the people of God. All of us. It's all our responsibility. MacArthur, lastly, he says it's not enough to simply help a sinning brother turn from his sin and then leave him alone. It is immediately after a spiritual victory that Satan often makes his severest attacks on God's people. 
are God's children. The spiritual believer who truly loves his brother and sincerely wants to restore him will continue to spend time with him and make himself available for counsel and encouragement and any kind of help. Amen. We need to remember something. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Every believer has been given a ministry of reconciliation. And guess what? Bearing one another's burdens is part of it. Repairing the, the damage is part of it. Helping each other reach full restoration is part of that reconciliation ministry. And Paul says when we do this, when we not only call out the sin, but when we help them restore and bear the burden that they created with them, look at what happens there in the text. We fulfill the law of Christ. Well, then and only then. What is the law of Christ? John 13, 34, Jesus gave it to His disciples after washing their feet. This is during the Last Supper. Here it is, a new command that I give you. This is the law of Christ, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. The law of Christ is the law of love which fulfills all the rest of God's law. Galatians 5.14, Romans 13.8, and verse 10. We keep in step with the Spirit when we bear one another's burdens. Closing. I really think what Paul is saying to these Galatians is that I know these Judaizers have created quite a mess in these churches, and I know you brothers who have given in to them have created a big mess. Work with each other. Confess your sins and work with each other to bring about restoration. If you find yourself, and I find myself, you find yourself in a situation where you feel led to challenge, to correct, and really ultimately to restore a sinning brother or sister, begin by performing a self-check to make sure that you are not led by your flesh. That's the first rule of Fight Club. That's the first step always. Check yourself. Check your motives. Ask yourself, well, what what kind of emotion, what kind of feeling, how, what is their sin? What is it leading me to think? How is it leading me to feel? What is it leading me to say or do? Ask yourself that. And if you don't find the gentleness and the things that are listed in this text, hit the road, Jack. Don't come back till you fix it. Self-check. If you find conceit, provocation, or envy, abandon ship and focus on yourself because your flesh is in control. But if you find no such sins and have a holy desire to show this care and this love and this support and you want them to be restored, then you can know without a doubt that the Spirit is in control and you should proceed. Amen? When you go to your sinning brother or sister, continue to keep in step with the Spirit by being gentle. Do not let the size of their sin or the level of damage they caused determine your disposition. Do not let that affect your attitude. You are commanded to be gentle regardless of those circumstances. So be gentle. That'll be a big challenge right there sometimes. But that's what we're called to do. When you are gently correcting your sinning brother or sister, continue to keep in step with the Spirit by remaining watchful over yourself. Do not lose sight of your own struggle with temptation and sin. Be humble and be careful not to get dragged into sin. Years ago, a pastor was trying to help a woman in his congregation who had been abandoned by her husband. And after several counseling sessions, she started to make passes at him. And he resisted for a while. He would just ignore them or, or say, um, you know, maybe you're, you're being overly friendly and, you know, let's just focus here and, and let me try to help you. And he did a pretty good job for a while. But he eventually caved to his flesh and had an affair with her.
And this destroyed his family and devastated his church. Yeah, I know there's a lot of mistakes that were made along the way. His wife or elders should have been in those meetings, no doubt. He didn't go about it the right way. He should have maybe even found a godly woman that could minister to her because that's a, a better case scenario or at least had some godly women in there with him. There's a right way to do this and a wrong way, and he didn't do it the right way, but it doesn't matter because the story shows what can happen when we're not watchful. That's the bottom line. We need to remember that sin is always crouching at the door. Genesis 4, 7. And lastly, if you, know, you go to your sinning brother or sister and they respond and you're doing it gently, you're, you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you're doing everything according to the way of the Spirit here in this text, you, you do this and your brother or sister responds positively to your gentle correction and they confess their you know, his or her sin, rejoice and thank the Lord. What a wonderful thing that has happened. But don't forget that this might be only the beginning. Be ready and willing to keep in step with the Spirit by bearing their burden with them. Be ready and willing to do that and help them get back on track. Help them repair the damage that they did. Help them pursue and procure full restoration in that body. Help them fix those relationships. Do the best that you can. Really, only God can fix these things, but the humble servant who wants to serve God can help in this, and God can work through you to bring about that restoration. And if you do this, right, if you, you go and, and you gently correct and and, and, and you help them bear that burden, and you help them through a process of, of getting right with everyone and getting restored in relationships and all these things, if you do this, if you do your diligent duty by walking in the Spirit and doing this, you fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, which is the law of love. 